Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome everyone to another episode of Revolution Recap. We have a bonus podcast for you today. Sam Minton of the Bent Musket interviewed Brad Feldman to talk about his time and his tenure as the play-by-play announcer for the New England Revolution. You can view Sam Minton's article on www.thebentmusket.com, but we have the full interview here for you to listen to. should be noted that we did interview Brad Feldman about a year ago. Me and Sean interviewed him. This interview does not overlap with that one very much, so please, for our longtime listeners that may remember the Feldman interview from 2021, this is worth a listen. Uh, And for our new listeners, you can still go back into our feed and check out the old Brad Feldman interview, as well as all of our other interviews. Reviews. Be sure to check out Sam Minton's work and everyone's work at The Bent Musket at www.thebentmusket.com. They'll be providing year-round coverage of the New England Revolution, one of the few outlets to do so. Also, we wanted to give a shout-out to our sponsor, GalassoKits.com. Use promo code REVSRECAP at GalassoKits.com and save 15% off your order. And also, thank you to our partners, The Rebellion. Go to nerebellion.org to learn more about supporter culture and how you can get involved for the upcoming 2023 season. And now, here is Brad Feldman. Yeah, just kind of starting off, what do you remember about the first game that you called for the Revolution? So the the first game that I called was, I believe, a radio game with Butch Stearns at the old Foxborough Stadium. And I remember it actually felt like really, really good. It was like, it was one of those domino effect things where I believe it was, it was like Seamus and Derek were the main TV guys, but Adrian was involved. And so Adrian moved over a seat and then John Mita Perel went on sideline. So I took John Mita Perel's spot. And uh, <clears throat> I did a few of those that season with, with uh, Mike Noonan and, and Butch Sturms usually as the color guys. Um, And they were really supportive and easy to work with, and it felt natural and low stakes. But then, a couple weeks later, it was Derek and and Adrian upstairs, and Meter Perel had a conflict, and so they put me on sideline, and I was pretty pretty tight for that. Like, I remember being, you know, and we had really good people in the the truck. I believe it was uh, Bob Frateroli and Amy Rosenfeld. Uh, who both went on uh, to long careers at, at ESPN and uh, had a lot of experience before that at, at Nesson, et cetera. And, and uh, now Amy's a big wig at NBC Sports. Uh, so I had some good hand-holding, but I was still I, – I, it was something I've been working for, and I'd done it for Kansas City a couple of years earlier, but it felt like a big moment for me. Um, I actually have a still, I believe, from that day. It was against the Metro Stars, and I remember that I think Johnny Torres drew a late penalty, and Nick Sakevich, who was the GM of the Metro Stars, was on the bench or behind the bench. He thought that Torres had had dived for the call, and he threw a water bottle that hit the leg of the bench. It was like, you know, sort of old-school metal, steel, portable benches. And it ricocheted off of the stanchion 
and hit my foot. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, he didn't throw it at you. He threw it at, out of frustration. You could make a big stink out of this, like go at him or report him or whatever. And there was a part of me, I was like, I don't want people to see me punk here. because. And I was like, you know, nobody wants to see the sideline reporter, the general manager of the visiting team. Well, a lot of people would probably love to have seen that. But it wouldn't, like, I wouldn't be sitting here having that conversation with you. And then um, I was walking down the tunnel, and the refs, the officials' locker room was just down the tunnel at the old stadium. And Sakevich was like, as he was wont to do, he was like pounding on the door, trying to have a conversation. The refs were just giving him the, the hand, they didn't want to talk to him. And I, I was like, I have a second chance here out of sight. I was like, I've worked too hard to get to this point to get into a confrontation. Now, Nick's, I'm not, you know, Nick's Kevin's a big guy. You know, I'm not trying to talk trash about him. It's the heat of the moment. He was competitive. But that's what I remember most is that, like, I was really, like, wound up about, like, my performance and whether I was going to ever get another chance to do it. And then that was all overshadowed by this sort of, like, the big hubbub at the end of the game. I think it ended 3-3. The Reds converted the penalty, and, and the Metro Stars felt like they got a home job from the Reds at Foxborough Stadium. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's what I remember. Yeah, and then, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, you were kind of tight and everything. So, Liz, how long did it take for you to kind of, you know, feel in the groove, get comfortable, uh, you know, whether it be the sidelines or in the booth, just kind of get that comfort level? 18, 20 years? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, on the one hand, if you're not a little nervous, in some way, you've lost your edge. And that's what drove me to prepare for every game the same way, uh, you know, or, or, or prepare more than when I started out. Uh, because you want to do a good job every time. Uh, in terms of the actual on-camera performance, it's hard to say. I, I think that different occasions have, you know, different sort of, sort of at least perceived orders of magnitude, levels of importance. I feel like I, you know, now I can go 20, 30 games never really feeling nervous. But if there's a production snafu or a big crowd, your nerves are elevated. Um, you feel like the spot is on you a little more and you get a little bit of those butterflies. But it's not like when I first started my broadcasting career 25 years ago where you get cotton mouth and you barely talk. And, uh, you know, it's like Albert Brooks and, uh, and uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, broadcast news or sweating down his face. I empathize with that character because um, you want to do well. But, you know, there was a tipping point. I remember, so I'll tell you a story. I always cite my daughter, Miriam, who is my sort of my, my, my guiding light in this life. <laughs> she, she's sort of, you know, I think my wife, Liz, and I would agree that she sort of got both of our better qualities and few of our less attractive ones she's just smart smart person i want to say kid she's a grown grown woman now but i used to for lack of a teleprompter i used to do like a a large type uh font script and sort of tape it below the camera lens or on a table near the monitor and she would come visit us in the booth once a year maybe watch us work sometimes she worked stats she started doing stats and she's like nine years old. I remember one time, you know, Taylor Twelman, we were doing Super League games. 
yeah, Miriam's a great, great job, really smart. And then we look over and like somebody giving her cotton candy, she wouldn't watch the game at all. But <laughs> she evolved beyond that to the point where she gave me advice. She said, Dad, why do you use that script? I said, I said what do you mean? She's like, you, you tape that up. I said, yeah, but I don't read it live. It's just sort of a, a crutch. She was like, take the training wheels off. You've been doing this a few years now. You can do it without the script. And she was right. And I, if you're asking me for when I stopped, like that was the moment. It was like, she's right. I already know what I'm going to say. And if I don't know what I'm going to say, I ad lib at halftime. I ad lib post game. Why do you need to script a pregame? And it was, uh, you know, I still always make notes and I always write down what I'm playing to say. But now I just like give it a glance. I have it in my head. And I think it comes off as more conversational and less uh, stilted. And as a result, you know, you got to trust the process. But my whole thing is always have fail safes. So even when I wasn't doing things out of like nerves or nervousness, I go through the same preparation just so, you know, have it in my head. Yeah. And then also too, you know, over your, your career, you've had plenty of different partners. So just overall interacting with all those different partners, getting used to them, that kind of dynamic. Just what was that like for you and, you know, being able to work with all these different great guys? Yeah, it's a privilege and really fun. And, you know, each one of those partners, and there have been, you know, we're talking in the sort of broad strokes about the guys I worked multiple seasons with, because obviously there have been fill-ins and other gigs that I've worked where, you know, but talking about the, the guys in the, in the Revs booth who were my, you know, John Peter Perel on radio, Adrian Healy, uh, Greg Lawless, Jay Heaps, Jeff Causey, Paul Mariner, Charlie Davies. Every one of those guys, they're a great guy, had a really professional attitude and was a completely different kind of person to, to work with. Um, I, I will say this about some of the existing ML, MLS announcers when I came in, uh, with very few exceptions, uh, the sort of collegial welcome that I got was looking back in what can, you know can be a very cutthroat business where there aren't very many jobs available. It was, you know, like, I'm, like I'm, I'm honored and flattered and, and very, very appreciative of what all those guys did. And not just Revs guys, like I'll mention names like J.P. De La Camera, Glenn Davis, as people, you know, who, who really helped me. You know, also color announcer like I had guys like uh, Shed Messing and Seamus Mal and and, and uh, Tommy Smith down at, at uh, ESPN who really helped me a lot too. But every one of the guys in the Reds booth was was terrific. Uh, I should also mention Derek Ray. I worked a little bit with him at ESPN, and he was you know very kind when when I first arrived on the scene with the Reds. I just didn't have as much to do with him as some of those other guys where I did full seasons. Uh, but you know, obviously Derek's a top pro. Um, and there are a lot of different ways he could have treated the you know new kid on the block, and he, he was just always good. Um, Adrian's one of my best friends in the business. We just spoke a couple days ago. We, you know, it was like being completely honest, and this is not a, a news flash. Like I was miscast as the color analyst when I got that job. Um, you know, just for the record, not that anybody cares anymore, but I was hired for that several months before I got the Revs director of communications job, there was some, I remember chatter back then that they were, that they were related. I, I took that job, you know, during in the mid season, but I, you know, the full-time job, whereas I've been hired as the analyst, but I never, I've been hired, hired as the analyst uh, during the off season uh, before that, but I never played or coached professionally. I just watched a lot of soccer. 
Now, in a sport like baseball, you see that still sometimes, especially on radio. But it's kind of like being a striker. If you're a striker, you know, for the for the reserve team, and then you know, first team says, "Hey, we need a right back." You're gonna you're gonna go out there and play as hard as you can, and that's what I did. And I think I learned a lot. I think Adrian had the ability to analyze as well as sort of carried me through. And then, you know, I was also doing, you know, I had a, a, four straight years where I was under contract as a freelancer for ESPN International. And I was doing, you know, I can't remember the numbers, but a couple dozen games a year for Fox Soccer Channel, mostly A-League, um, as, as USO was called back then. And so I was getting a lot of reps, a lot of chops. I was also spread way too thin. Um, I think that's when I lost a lot of my hair follicles. And, uh, you know, but so to have somebody like Adrian to booth with me was massive. And because he was just like a, you know, kind, smart guy, let me do my bit, but also like set a good example in terms of just his demeanor, his work habits. And we, you know, we're about the same age. We like a lot of the same bands. We still go to rock and roll shows together when we're in the same place. Like, I miss him now that he's down in Texas. But Adrian, one of the great guys. Just one of the great guys. He really is. I would say the same thing about the next guy to come in, uh, Greg Lawless. Because uh, at that point, like, Adrian and I almost sort of flipped, you know, where Adrian went to work for ESPN International. I took over the uh, main play-by-play seat where we both kind of, like, achieved our goals at the same time. And, you know, Adrian, the way he even handled that, like, I can't give the, the goals the whole thing, but I, let me just say the guy in a world where where etiquette and courtesy and, and just the old school right way of doing things has become a lost art. He's a master of that art. Adrian is just a quality guy. Greg Lawless, even though we fought on the air all the time, it was really, like, I really enjoyed doing the games with Greg because, you know, he's really smart, and he's not just, like, sort of whip smart with quips. Like, he has, he's an intellectual, he's a well-read guy, and I enjoyed sparring with him, even when I was convinced he was wrong. It was funny seeing some of these compendiums at the end, you know, where they pulled out sort of two worst free kicks in Rev's history to hear the way that he talked about those moments, that sort of droll, dry sense of humor. I, I appreciated it. And, you know, we really had a lot of good times. We're still friends. Uh, I just saw him uh, a few weeks ago um, with his with his wife and, and family. You know, Greg and I, yeah, I think we'll stay in touch for a, for a long time. Jay Heaps... And Jeff Causey were guys that I both covered when I in those early years I was talking about, who then graduated to the booth, and they brought that player's perspective. That you know, and, and to be fair, Greg played too, but you know these guys were longer term MLS pros, and they brought a different perspective. Uh, Jay, you know, Jay brings a tremendous uh, commitment and intensity to everything he does, whereas Jeff has a more sort of like laid back approach. So there's a real contrast. But I enjoyed working with both of them. But with both of them, they also both had jobs in finance at the same time. So I wasn't spending as much time on the road with them. Um, and so, like, it wasn't the same kind of relationship, but both great experiences. Paul Mariner, listen, I last summer when, when he passed away, I talked a lot about that relationship. And, you know, I can go down that road. I'm happy to, like... The memory of Paul Mariner is one of the great blessings. 
to the sport and the club and to me individually changed my life in so many good ways. I miss him every day. You know, we became friends while he was still uh, the top assistant to, to Steve Nichol, which is an unusual thing, I think. But, it, you know, it started as, you know, when he first walked in to go to HR and then we we be, we became friends uh, in, in that first preseason when the Reds went to the Azores. And uh, Steve and Paul invited me to watch a game at the pub, and it, we just never really stopped hanging out after that. We're from very, very, very different backgrounds. But, you know, I like to think that we both have an optimistic, sort of you know, curious approach to life. And we both we rock in very different ways. But, you know, Paul, Paul is... Paul's a classic rock and roller and I'm more of a Gen X kind of a guy, but, uh, but he just a, a giving spirit, you know, tough in a lot of ways and very tender in a lot of ways. And I think that came through in the broadcasts and in the way he related to the, the supporters base. Um, and you can see it when you went back when you to England with him too, he was so modest about his actual fame. I'm not even sure he realized you know, how much more he could have exploited his fame, even though he was well past his uh, star playing days. He just, 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 uh, yeah, I'm going to get emotional, so I'll, I'll stop. I'm not going to tell anybody listening this or watching this or reading this anything they don't already know or think about Paul Mariner because he's universally loved. And, you know, and then the broadcast part of that was fun. And then Charlie Davies, you know, what a hero, what a, what a New England story what he's had to overcome and the optimism and uh upbeat outgoing approach that he brings after all the struggles he's been through i think you know he's just gotten wiser and smarter as he's gone along he's very similar to paul in that they both have this strikers mentality not just for like scoring goals and sort of leaning into life but when they've got an opinion like when they want the ball they want the ball and they see every referee's call, almost every referee, through like the lens of a striker. And you can't move them off the spot. Like they are so stubborn. Now, both of these guys are international footballers. And sometimes they're going to see, a lot of times they're going to see things that I don't see because of their experience or because as a play-by-play guy, I have to ball watch the whole, the whole time. But man, are those two guys stubborn. And they loved each other because they were cut out of the same cloth. Uh, so, you know, Charlie... You know, I, I think he's just going to go from strength to strength. You know, he does so many things in broadcasting outside of Revs TV. Uh, but, you know, Charlie's, you know, really grown into the role. And I see uh, great things, you know, continuing to happen for him. And so, you know, I could go on even longer about each one of those partners. Each one of those relationships was special. Each one of them was, was a blessing to me personally. And so, yeah, like, you know, they, you know, yeah, it was one of the cool parts of the job, for sure. Yeah, and then also, too, uh, so our photographer, uh, he was also a broadcast uh, double major, I believe, and he wanted me to ask you, were there any technological advancements over the years that either made the job easier for you or just really stood out to you that you really appreciated since you were so you know ingrained from the start to where we are now? <laughs> well, the first obvious answer that's going to sound a little bit sarcastic, but it's true, is high def hd when i started they're still doing an sd and one of the things that happened was and again we're painting broad strokes here but 
the switch meant that there was an upgrade in the quality of the trucks and the equipment, not just the, the, the sharpness of the picture, you know, obviously, you know, it's a lot more information in every frame and, you know, the TVs got bigger and, and sharper and all that. But it, we were, there was, a, there were a couple of seasons there where we were getting like the worst old SD trucks and it wasn't even that they were the worst among the fleet. It was that with HD coming in and a lot of these things on their last legs, some of these trucks in the late 2000s were just not getting upgraded or serviced because they knew they were going out of commission sometime in the next year or two. So I can't remember what season. I want to say like 08 or 09, or right around the time that the, the, you know the, those great Revs teams were starting to like sort of trail off. Our equipment was not going to work very well either. So there's not one piece of equipment that I can speak to. But like we did a show in in uh, in San Jose where we barely got on the air, and it was down to the like people were like, "Yeah, this is the." I can't remember. There's a term in in, in the truck world. But it was like the, it's like the boneyard, you know, it's like the boneyard voyage or something like that, <laughs> where it's like a ghost. It's a ghost ship, you know what I mean? <laughs> and we, we did a couple of those, you know, I, I, I was interviewed about this uh, a couple of days ago after my producer, Jim Dodonna talked about it. They were like, what happened down in Houston with the generator? I was like, you don't even want to know. It was like, they didn't have enough power on site to power more than one truck. And there was a hurricane rolling through. And in those days, the trucks couldn't handle it. You know, the engineers are great. They would scramble and everything. So I know I'm not talking about like anyone, like, so for me, Personally, I love getting the telestrations. First with Fingerworks, which is a little more rudimentary, sort of old school. And then the last couple of seasons, we had uh, Coach Pink, Kyron Hago, and I did a lot of the work with that. And I, I really enjoyed being able to tell stories with pictures that sort of called out some of the tactical stuff or even just made it viewer, easier for viewers to sort of focus on when you have the high game camera angle. It's like, okay, you're talking about, uh, you know, a winger who's on the far side, put a circle under him, freeze frame it with his name, track him with a little trail behind, show the, the, the arc of the cross. I think that's good for storytelling. And, you know, last thing I'll say is at one point, you know, I want to work more in the way these new analytics in, but I've come to realize that you have to do quick snapshots and not go too deep. And that people who want that can get on the websites and the blogs and, and, and the Twitter feeds and drill down more on that. But I do think if you have a great number that does tell a story, you know, some of these, but you know, whether it's Opta or Second Spectrum or, you know, Pressbox Live or, you know, you know any one of these, you know, they're, they're the, you know, American Soccer Analytics. And so these independent websites are really good too. They're just not official sources. But you just want to keep it simple because what people really care about is the game on the field when the ball's in play. And then you're, you know, then in the post game, you can say, well, expected goals or, you know, 3.91 to 0.05, but, you know, Cincinnati gets away with, you know, the 1-1 draw or whatever. You know, so, you know, that, those are the kinds of advances that made it more interesting, but you have to know how to apply them. Yeah, definitely. And also, too, looking more recently, obviously, uh, halftime interviews uh, with Bruce Arena, they have definitely become one of the intriguing parts of the broadcast. Overall, just what was it like being able to do those with him? And, you know, even if you just want to touch upon halftime interviews in general, what are those like to do? Well, I think it's amazing that we've made it through four seasons of interviews with Bruce at halftime, and none of those headsets have actually been busted. 
<laughs> it shows that they're pretty durable nowadays. No, listen, Bruce is good, and I, I don't know if you noticed, but I feel like the last half to two-thirds of the season, with maybe one exception, he was really good. Like, you ask one question, open-ended question, and he gave good analysis. I, I tried to never take it personally when he was gruff or brusque or, or, or you know, like especially if there was just, like, a call he felt like went against him or his team gave up a softball just before halftime. He's anxious to get into the into the locker room. And I think that he, we haven't talked about it. Uh, I, but he tries to be mindful of, he, he respects the job we're doing. He's let us know that. And if it ever came across like he's trying to diss us or whatever, like, you know, imagine how he talks to his players at halftime. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just Bruce, the New York guy, in the heat of the moment. He's competitive. He's got a lot on his mind. And I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. Like, I, you know, I, I, I think that was good TV. And I don't think he was ever trying to grandstand to make it. Like, you know, if he was complaining about video review, he had to be with video review. I didn't want the guy to get fined just for himself. You know, but that made it a good a good interview but I you know anything yeah like I think probably for a lot of viewers if he was angry or sarcastic or you know sort of dissed the guys in the booth you know implicitly a little bit yeah maybe that's a little more entertaining or funny but I didn't I never felt like it was gratuitous and I do feel like on aggregate if you went through like let's say give or take there have been a hundred of those 120 of those and since he took over only like five or six, you'd be like, whoa, that was bad. <laughs> and the rest of them, he's totally awesome. And so think about the people you deal with every day in your life. You'd take that ratio, like 95% of the time, they're really nice. And the rest of the time, they're just human. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you, you kind of mentioned it too. Uh, for the throwing of the headsets, obviously there's the infamous, does anyone know what's going on uh, moment. I know... Uh, that was hilarious. That was hilarious. What was that like in the booth for you? Just overall, just you know, witnessing that all come together and just what was that like? Yeah, I think I think what that was, if I'm not mistaken, where was that? Was it Montreal? I can't remember where it was. No, I wanted to say that it was during COVID because I think we also had another one of those where the headset didn't work during COVID when we were doing it from the studio. But the, does anybody know what's going on moment? I believe we were actually on site. And what you do is, it's like, I get on talkback, and what I'll say to the truck is, He's not hearing us. Are we going to get him? They're like, and then you know, somebody will scream in your ear like, we're trying, we're trying. <laughs> so I'll say, Bruce, like, I can't remember the exact flow, but I'll be like, can you hear us? He's like, does anybody know what's going on? And then say, clearly technical difficulties. We apologize and thank Coach for his time. The score one-to-one and a half time. We'll be back with more on Revolution TV or something. You know, you just got to roll with it. That's live TV. And you know, when you talk about the nerves, like one of the things that I think creates nerves is the specter of the unknown. And as you get more experienced, like, you know, you've been in those situations before, you get less flustered or rattled by them. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot in the last couple of weeks. We have really good people. We've had really good people in the truck. Uh, the producers I've worked with always have had my back and are good at communicating. And so they're just like, we're going to break, or we're going to, yeah, they're like, we're going to blow it off breaking 15 and they'll count me out and I'll just do my little score and summary. And, you know, if that happens once a year, that's just, you know, the cost of doing business. 
Yeah, and you kind of mentioned it too. Obviously, when COVID came, that was definitely, you know, a big hiccup for uh, the broadcast industry. So just how difficult was it for you and just kind of adjusting to, you know, calling games remotely? Just what was that experience like? Well, you talk about technological advances in HD. For me, it was like getting on a, a spaceship into the future. Because when I was calling games off the monitor for ESPN International back in the early 2000s, in the mid-2000s, you were still on, you know, 20-inch SD monitors, sometimes getting uplinked and downlinked three, four, five times, which degraded the signal. Um, sometimes, if it was like a Serie A match, you would have a site contact who would tip you off that subs were coming in or, you know, a goal might be scored, which I didn't like because it would ruin the immediacy and the emotion. But, you know, sometimes it was helpful just to have them tell the producer and say, because you couldn't tell whose number it was. And that's what I was talking about. If you have Real Sociedad against Athletic now, and it's SD, and you know 90% of the guys are cousins from the Basque region. They have the same barber and the same build and the same haircut, and the gold numbers on the striped jerseys, you don't know who's who. So by contrast, Craft Sports Productions in our studios, we had these big honking you know, HD monitors and... Uh, you know, now with the internet, you have, you know, video you can watch to prepare and you have headshots on everybody. And, you know, it, it's, it was like getting glasses <laughs> when you can't see like that. So to me, that part of it was good. The, the big lift for me was just, you know, we were sort of in limbo about what we were going to do all spring and summer. And there were rumblings that we think things were headed that way. So I had started to prepare I don't remember the exact timeline, but I think as early as June, you know, we were exploring stuff. But then when the plan was kicked into gear, I should have notes on all of this somewhere. But we it was like a three week ramp up to get ready for that. And, you know, coordinate with the transmission people, the crewers, the opposing venues, um, the opposing team venues, everything. And then, you know, sharing the stadium is a time of year where the Patriots are getting into the training camp in preseason, and you still have concerts, and the logistics of it. And that's why, I don't know if people notice, you know, how many times, you know, without listing all the individual names, but people like Jason Stone and Jim Carlson in stadium operations, for me, were just, you know, in addition to you know, MJM Productions, all the people at Craft Sports Productions and uh, uh, Craft Sports and Entertainment, you know, like there's so many names I leave out who are, who are so important to it. But the lift we had to do in a short time, it was incredibly stressful. And that part of it was, you know, more than calling the games off the monitor. That was the fun part <laughs> at the end of, you know, the, the four-day sprint to get everything ready. And then when you talk about like coaches not being able to hear on headset, there's like you, we would have to like hire a separate camera and audio technician on site, and we're not the only ones who who did that. But you know the Bruce Arena interviews it was a sponsored segment, and so some opposing venues are like, well, can you do without that? It's like, well, no, we've got sponsored post game, sponsored coach interview, and then you had to negotiate all these other things and then test them on you know when you do it when you have an NFL production they come in and they test the stuff the day before the sunday night football day two days before we're doing it with no set days and you know nls regional we're doing it on site same day and if it doesn't work it doesn't work 
uh, but people are doing backflips to try to get it working on time. And some of the stuff that came off during that stretch was uh, was something. And there were, you know, like our vendors, like you know, like the Switch and Game Creek Productions, Thistle Communications, all those people really worked with us. MLS Broadcasting, like it was that part of it was was the part that I'll remember. And when people said, have said to me in the last week or so, well, it must be nice to not have a game. I was like, well, obviously, like, you know, the Reds not made the playoffs for so many reasons. That is not a good good thing in my in, in my world. But I would say the Reds making two late playoff runs combined with the station switch. You know, two years ago, we, we switched from NBC Sports Boston to BZ38. That has meant that it's, you know, since like August of 2020, you know, other than like a couple of international breaks, but you're still working during those times. Like this has felt like the first real exhale I've had since since the COVID summer when everybody's stressed out for other reasons. Yeah, and just obviously, uh, you know, this season kind of coming to an end. Uh, just overall, what is kind of your favorite memory about being in the booth? And just overall, your favorite, you know, what you'll look back upon, you know, with craft sports and productions, just being able to bring the MLS broadcast. Yeah, like, there's no one favorite memory. Like, you can see I can go on and on about this stuff at length. And, you know, the the compilation video that came out that we ran at the end of the Chicago game and then the Revs sort of added to it and put it on their website, that has a lot of the great moments. Like, it, 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 certainly a lot of them were missed, too. There's just no way to, to squeeze, squeeze all that good stuff into, you know, a five, seven-minute video. And... My favorite memories are all sort of like little things that wouldn't necessarily, I think, resonate with anybody outside of like my immediate circle of friends and family. I love doing it. I, I, I hope that comes through in my enthusiasm for this kind of a talk and when I, when I express my, my gratitude and my sign-offs because like, I, like there are people who know more about the history of soccer or soccer in New England there are people who know more about the revolution or MLS than I do. Like, and especially now your generation, you know, the information that's out there, the way people study and approach the game, a lot of respect for that. There are people who have as much passion as me, but I would, I defy find anybody who would be characterized at least as sane, who like loves it more than I do. Like I, like I just, I put my back into it in part because I was like, this is, this is too good to be true and I can't screw this up because I want this. And I feel like it was such a, just a huge opportunity. I would have been just as enthusiastic if I'd end up like in Dallas or Kansas city, but this is, this is where I'm from. You know, I was born in New Hampshire for the most part, you know, 16 of my first 18 years, I grew up in and around Boston. And then I've been back here, you know, for the last uh, 22, 23 years. So most of my life I lived in New England I'm Boston teams, New England teams, all the way down the line in terms of, like, the other sports where I'm a fan. And, you know, I went to team end games as a young kid. I, I went to watch the World Cup at the Boston Opera House on closed circuit TV. I used to go into Harvard Square and spend my allowance on total football, world soccer. And, like, I, you know, I was crushed when the team had moved to Jacksonville. <laughs> You know, like, so the idea, this ended up being what I did, 
Were there other things I could have done? Like, I don't even want to have that discussion. This is what happened. It was so damn great. So the things I value were like being able to transmit the enthusiasm, hopefully in a credible professional way, but in one that, that, that augmented. You know, I, I know that every call or every one or whatever is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But I hope people recognize that uh, the passion is authentic, that I love the region. I love, love – I wanted – the sport and the league to succeed and continue to succeed in this area. And so like, I can't pick out one moment. It was just the job. It's, it was a thrill. And, and you know, whatever happens next, like I've said this before, but like being able to do this for 22 seasons was beyond anything I could have imagined. And so just like gratitude, you know, thanks, you know, to the supporters, the fans, our craft family, the whole organization, you know, the whole craft organization, the revolution, but certainly all the other branches and arms. And, you know, I, I, get, I get my list of thanks to, you know, my colleagues, my family. All, all, like, I don't want to rush through it, but I'm just saying, you ask me what my favorite thing is. My favorite thing is I did it. I can't believe I did it. You know, it's been, it's been wonderful. Nah, that, that's perfect, Brad. And I do just want to say thank you uh, so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. And uh, hopefully we'll be hearing more of your uh, voice soon.